The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Hello? Alright, just making sure this thing's on. Good morning, RGF. It's good to see you this Sunday morning. Uh, we had uh, our first youth event last night, and it was a success. Just a little praise that uh, we had about 20, 25 people, uh, youth and family, at Robert Moses Beach. We, uh, we played a lot of sports, and we went in the ocean, and, and then we hung out at Schultz yesterday. It was a, it was a great time. I'm very thankful uh, my only complaint is that I don't get to see you guys enough, and so every time we get together, it's an awesome treat for us. Um, but today, our text is going to be Genesis 34, we just read, so if you'd open your Bibles there. Now this story is, is unlike most stories that we will hear and, be, and preach from. In this story, it's unlike any superhero movie that you will watch, because in that, there's always a good person or multiple good people, and there are bad people or multiple bad people. And I love superhero movies because there's always this tension between good and bad, good and evil, and I love watching and figuring out how the good guys are going to finally win, finally get it going. But in Genesis 34, it is not like that, because every single person in here is a bad person. And so if the story ends in Genesis 34, it would leave you thinking, where is the good guy? There is absolutely nothing good coming from this text. Now I'm going to give you a little bit of background, kind of, if you're just joining us now, it's kind of what we've been going through. We've been going through the life of Jacob uh, through this summer in Genesis. Jacob, over the past couple of chapters, has been running away from Esau. He is deeply afraid to see him because he has tricked Esau into giving him his birthright and stole the blessing from Isaac that rightly was due to Esau. Jacob sees Esau and becomes greatly afraid. And he begins to pray to God to deliver him. Jacob then ends up wrestling a man who is God, a theophany. But more specifically, as Jonathan mentioned, it was a Christophany, a pre-incarnate Christ. And Jacob wrestles this pre-incarnate Christ and is blessed by him. And the pre-incarnate Christ touches his hip socket. Jacob wrestles with God and is able to limp out, having been blessed by him. In chapter 33, Jacob fearfully is about to see Esau and puts his servants out front. And then he puts Leah and her children. And then lastly, Rachel and Joseph because they are his favorites. Esau runs up and kisses Jacob, and they weep together, and for some reason, there is no hatred. This is an absolute miracle that Esau's wrath has subsided. Jacob gives Esau much stuff as a present. Then Esau wants to go with Jacob and his family to a place called Seir. Jacob says, you go first, Esau, and then we will be right behind, and we will follow you there. i got to take care of some things here. we got a lot of stuff. 
Jacob ends up heading and going actually in the opposite direction towards Succoth. And he ends up in a place called Shechem, which is in Canaan. Jacob buys land in Canaan from Shechem and Hamor, who are the leaders. And that is where Genesis 34 picks up in Canaan, in the land where Shechem and Hamor are leaders. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to break this up into four scenes. And I'm just going to go through the scenes of Genesis 34, and then there will be three application points at the end. But I want you to know that the main point of this story in Genesis 34 is that there's a lot of very nasty, ugly sin, but that does not mean that God is bad like that. God is good, right? But God is still good despite all of this sin. I want you to know that despite all this sin, God is good. But before we begin, let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much, God, for for giving us this morning. I thank you for Sundays in which we can gather and we can come and worship you and preach your word, Lord, and hear from you and sing to you and pray to you and join together as a body and remember the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For that is our greatest hope in every situation that we are in. So, Lord, I pray that the risen Christ would be very real to us today. Lord, I pray, God, that we would see him and worship him and love him. God, I also pray that that we would love, we would love Jesus, we would love righteousness, love goodness. God, I pray that you would instill in us a hatred for sin, a deep hatred for everything that is against you. God, we need your help. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work through me to preach clearly what this text is saying. God, I pray that you'd help me to to be clear, to be concise. Lord, I also pray, God, um, most importantly, that we would see Christ and see that we are bad people too, that we need forgiveness of sins, that we are not good. In fact, we are unrighteous, deserving of wrath you drank the cup for us. Help us see that this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, as a disclaimer up front, I want to say that what is written here is extremely sensitive and disgusting stuff that happens in a sinful world. In this section here, there is a person who is raped. And it is absolutely evil in the sight of God. So if you have experienced anything like this, I want you to know the church stands ready to help you, not to hurt you. This is not a funny topic by any means, and so I intend to deal with this very seriously. And so when you hear this, uh, please don't think that this is anything worthy of joking or anything but it is such a disgusting sin that is punishable. And so in this first scene, Shechem does rape Dinah and then seeks to marry her. In verses 1 through 4, if you'll just read with me, I'm going to read through it. It says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. 
He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Give me this girl for my wife. So in this first scene, we see something awful happening. Dinah is Leah's daughter. Jacob has indifference towards Leah. And that indifference is now carried down towards Dinah, as we'll see through this story. And his indifference is what causes an overreaction by her brothers to stand up for her and to murder everyone in this town. Dinah is the daughter of Leah. She is the unloved wife of Jacob. But they stood up when Jacob would not. But Dinah goes out, and it says here, went out to see the women of the land. It does not sound like a bad thing, but it's actually not a compliment. Nor is it her just trying to go out and make friends with people in this land. That's not what it means. Leah, in in chapter 30, verse 16, she goes out and lures Jacob by making a deal with Rachel. She went out to the land and told Jacob that she hired him with mandrakes in order to lay with her. Now, Dinah is doing something similar here. In Hebrew, the the phrase, go out into the land, also means to be in the midst of these cult prostitutes. The women of the land of Canaan are not moral people. They're very sexually immoral people. And she's going out and befriending these women. Now, oftentimes in our culture, people will blame the victim of rape and say stuff like, she should not have been wearing that. They should not have been where she was. She should not have been hanging out with these people. So as to put blame on the victim. That is simply not okay. Dinah is not asking to be raped. This is by no means justifiable. By any means of the imagination. She should not be where she is. But that does not mean that she deserves this by any means. So if you have heard anything like this, you must stop that instantly. Because that is a disgusting lie to justify something horrific. Throughout Genesis, it is forbidden to have intermarriage between an Israelite woman and a woman of the land, and even to be uh, friends with her is to go against God. And now it says here in verse 2 that the Shechem, the son of Amor, he seized her, he lay with her, and he humiliated her. Implies that it was forcible, not willing. Implies that he took her honor from her. And then it says in verse 3 that he loved her and spoke tenderly to her. Well, does he actually love her? Absolutely not. Do you see what he just did in verse 2? This is not love by any means. But... In Genesis 2, God makes marriage and sex. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So in sex, something happens in which you are drawn closer together. But he does not show any remorse or apologize or honor her in any way. So these words that he speaks tenderly to her are manipulative. So let's recap. Why were his actions evil? One, he was forcible. His actions were not from love, but from selfishness. This is rape, and this action was about pleasing himself, not like the biblical notion of sex, which is to give of yourself. He took for himself. 
he humiliated her rather than building her up. Sex is designed to uplift your spouse and make them feel loved, not to demean them. He manipulates her afterwards by speaking tenderly to her. It says that he loves her, but that is clearly not biblical love. And then Shechem speaks to his father in an abrupt fashion. He says, Hamor, my father, get me this girl for my wife. He doesn't even say her name. He says, get me this girl. He doesn't say, please. This is a child who has been entitled, who has too much power, and no one is standing up to him. He runs the family. The parents do whatever the child says. The child speaks it, the parent does it. For fear that maybe he will not like him. Or maybe for fear that he has so much power that he would hurt him if he doesn't do what he says. We see here that Hamor has no authority over his son. He will not confront Shechem in his sins. Maybe because Shechem has more power, but it doesn't matter what the reason is. Whatever it is, is that we know that Hamor is more concerned about pleasing his son than pleasing God. And so, parents here, if this is a tendency that you might have, fight the good fight for your child's soul. That he might know, or she might know, to respect authority, to respect God, to respect others. Now we're going to our second scene, which is now the negotiations. He wants to marry Dinah, and so now him and his father, Hamor, are going to go and speak to Jacob and his sons. This section is almost entirely dialogue, and everything on the surface of this conversation seems polite, but it's actually a lot of exaggeration, speaking deceitfully in order to get what they want. And also, I want you to notice that during this whole time, the Shechemites hold on to Dinah. Dinah is in their presence. In verse 17, it says, We will take our daughter and we will be gone. If you do not comply, we will take her daughter and be gone, which implies that she is in Shechem's house. Dinah was held as a hostage for sway in this deal. More sin upon more sin. Verse 5, Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. Jacob held his peace until they came. So Jacob now finds out what happened to his daughter. And it says that he held his peace until his sons came back. The author Moses is trying to make it explicitly clear that Jacob knew about the rape of his daughter. And it says that she was defiled, which was referring to her honor. This was a very shameful act for her, but also for him to have heard this. Dinah, Jacob's daughter, has her honor ripped away from her, and Jacob is silent. We would expect a reaction like that from David after hearing about Tamar's rape. 2 Samuel 13, 21, he says that he was very angry. That feeling that you are getting is a right feeling. You should be angry at this. Silence oftentimes is a good thing, but here it is revealing the horrendous indifference that Jacob has towards sin and the sin that happened to his daughter. Then he goes on here. Hamor, the father of Jacob, went out to, to Jacob to speak with him. 
the sons of Jacob had come in, right? They have a completely different view, it says, and from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant. They were very angry. Why? Because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Right? They were upset because they knew that this was an outrageous thing. This is something that should not be done. What needs to happen? There needs to be a consequence. Something needs to happen. This is not okay. But Jacob, again, is not doing anything about it. And then he goes on. Hamor keeps, he goes up to them, to Jacob and his sons, and he says, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. And they go on. And then, notice in verse 13, who answers, It's not Jacob, but it's the sons of Jacob. Where is Jacob? Why is he not protecting his family? So what that Leah is not your favorite wife? So what if Dinah is not your favorite child? Stand up for your family's sake. No, that's not enough for him. Do it for your nations and your people's sake. This is an outrageous thing in Israel. And you're the leader. No. Stand up and be a man because this act is against God, your God. No, that's not enough for him. Do not forget that this whole negotiation in the first place should have been cut off at the beginning. These are Canaanites. They're, you don't make deals with the Canaanites. You make deal with God. You are your own nation and God has chosen you to protect you and to keep you. Just like Eve's talk with, this, with the serpent. It should have been cut off right away if Adam was there to protect her from the sin. But sin gets worse as you let it run its course. Hamor's address has no apology in verses 8 through 13. There's no talk about what, what Shechem did to Dinah. But what he says is this. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us. And take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us. And the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it. Get property in it. Let me find favor in your eyes and I will give you a lot of money. And it's true. They probably did have a lot of money. They had a lot of money to give. They had a lot of stuff to give. But is that worth it for what has happened? For not standing up for your family? Hamor and Shechem bribed Jacob and his sons with stuff and wealth. And they exaggerated to make it sound like it's going to be a great deal. You're going to get all this property and you're going to get all this stuff. Won't you join with us? The response from the sons of Jacob, in verse 13 it says, The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. Okay, Jacob, you're not going to stand up? Fine, we will stand up. We will respond. We will do. We will take action because no one else is. They're probably thinking, this is the guy who defiled my sister, and he's now going to make a deal with us. Will he play fair in this deal also? Probably not. Why would I trust anything that this guy says? He's not confessed. He's not said anything about this yet. And on top of that, he's keeping our sister in his house. And he goes on to say, 
we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are, which is circumcised. Every male among you must be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take our daughters to ourselves, and, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. So do this thing, do this religious right that we have in Israel where you must be circumcised in order to become one flesh with us, to become one nation with us. And if you don't do this, we will take our daughter and we will be gone. And then verse 18 through 19, they comply because Shechem loves Dinah. They're willing to do whatever they, they can in order for Shechem to get Dinah. Now we're going to this, the third scene. And this third scene is Hamor and Shechem telling their people the deal. Now they're going to tell exactly what uh, Jacob and his son said to their people to get them to agree to this condition. Hamor and Shechem go to the city, gate of the city in verse 20, the platform, which is a typical place for meetings. They do not mention the personal relationship between Dinah and Shechem, that this is the reason why they're doing it. It's because Dinah and Shechem, or Shechem loves Dinah. But they don't say that. They try to persuade the townsmen with the advantages they can get through this relationship. It's a very smart tactic, and it works, which is why they do it. Verse 21, they say, These men are at peace with us. No, they're not. They know what has happened. But they're going to tell them this. And then they go on to say, let, it, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised, as they are. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. See, there's the catch. Why should you do this? Because then you can get all of their stuff. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to him more in his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. So this is very similar, right, to what advertisements will try and do to us. You have a void in your life. It will only be fulfilled if you have the new iPhone 38. The iPhone 37 will not do. So therefore, buy this for $300,000 and you will be happy. What he says, he says, we don't have enough stuff. We don't have enough, we have enough land to give it to them, but we don't have enough stuff. So let us trade. Let us do this. Tell you what you want to hear. Leave out the stuff that you don't want to hear. And then you buy. The Shechemites agreed to the condition. They heard it and were circumcised. Now the fourth scene. Jacob's sons destroy and plunder the Shechemites. Verse 25 through 31. On the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Amor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones, all, and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. 
Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? So the brothers of Dinah attack not just Shechem and Hamor, notice, but all of the males in the city. Simeon and Levi are mass murderers. They killed many innocent people, and they did so deceitfully. These people, it says, when they were sore, was from the circumcision that they just had received. So this is a major surgery, and they were, for all intents and purposes, basically lying in a hospital bed. They're, they're vulnerable. They waited for three days to make them feel secure, and that's when they attack and kill every male. Get circumcised, not, not so you can actually join us, but so that you will be vulnerable and unable to attack us back. Do you see the amount of deceit happening? The amount of sin that just keeps going and going? Why did Simeon and Levi kill everybody? For one thing, their father Jacob was not doing anything. So they did what was right in their own eyes. They took actions in their own hands. Jacob's failure to act, if he would have acted, this could have probably stopped all of this. But he didn't. But also Simeon and Levi were taken over by wrath and fury and vengeance. And they loved Dinah. They couldn't handle what had happened to her, and so they did this disproportionate killing. Typically, you'd want an eye for an eye. But here, Simeon and Levi, they wanted an eye for the entire body. They go in and kill Shechem, and they kill everybody, and then they take all their stuff, all their wives, all their kids, to be their own. And then Jacob comes up. Jacob talks. This is the first time that Jacob speaks in this entire thing, is after all this stuff has happened. He goes up to Simeon and Levi, and he's upset at them for a couple of reasons. You've brought trouble on me. Now I'm upset because now I'm fearful again of the Canaanites and Perizzites. I just got over this thing with Esau. Now I'm afraid that all these other places, uh, the nations are going to attack me. I shall be destroyed. Now these are legitimate fears. Very legitimate. If your sons go and attack an entire city, kill all of their marriages, take all their wives, all their children, and all their stuff for yourself, you should expect some consequences. However, let's look at what Jacob does not mention in verses 30 and 31. He mentions nothing about the defiling of his own daughter. Not once. Not through this entire chapter. He does not condemn them for the massacre that they did, but rather that the massacre has consequences. He does not condemn them for abusing the right of circumcision, but just rather that he stinks in this land. He does not condemn them for the breach of contract. We will do this thing and we will uh, protect you, basically. We, you'll become one nation with us. He does not even condemn them for the intermarriage that they had between the Canaanites and the Israelites. But rather, he's just upset that, he, that their actions now make him unpopular. That's his concern. He's in it to protect his own skin. Simeon and Levi aren't buying it. They said, should he treat our sister like this, like a prostitute? No. 
Absolutely not. I hear what you're saying. But should he be able to do this with no consequence? If you had a better idea, Jacob, why did you not speak up? Why are you more concerned about yourself rather than your own daughter and your own people? You knew what happened, verse 5 says. You did nothing. To make things even worse, Shechem had more come to you. And you could have rebuked them. You could have stopped this whole thing. But rather, you took their money. And you protected them, so you thought. For Jacob to accept the gifts after the defiling of Dinah, to heed the protection of the Shechemites, is in all considerable accounts like Jacob acting as bad as a pimp. Paying, getting money for the protection of somebody who just raped his own daughter. This is absolutely absurd. But this is nothing new. Abraham gave his wife and said, this is my sister. This has happened before. So let's review everything that has happened. Dinah sinned by becoming a friend of the world. Shechem sinned by defiling Dinah. Jacob sinned by not caring for his daughter. Hamor sinned by trying to cover up his son's acts of sexual violence. Jacob's children sinned by making a deal with Hamor that they never intended to keep. Simeon and Levi sinned by killing many people, innocent people, being overcome in anger and wrath. And those are the only the big sins that we see in this text. All of that has happened in one chapter. Again, I want to remind you, the main point of this whole story is that there's a lot of ugly, nasty sin, but do not forget that God is good. All right, so now we're going to go to the application. The application. Point number one for the application is that the good book is filled with bad people. Right, this right here is oftentimes referred to as the good book. But that does not mean that everything in it, nor everyone in it, is a good person, and the stories end in a good, happy ending. Here, one sin that goes unchecked leads to a lot more sin, by overcompensating, or indifference, and most importantly, no regard for God. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. I tell you what, I'm glad that the Bible does not hold back on certain details and stories because it makes me comforted in the fact that it's true. This is the stuff that we see in the news. This is the stuff that happens to us in our families and, and, and to the friends that we know. This is, this is stuff that's been happening for years. And it just confirms the Bible's teaching of no one is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned. But guess what? God's plan has never been squashed by man's sin. Rather, God's plan and his promises have been brought to fruition despite all of these sins. Take, for example, Jesus being crucified. The only good person to have ever lived and existed endured the most excruciating, awful death from bad people. Consider Acts 4. He says, For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. These bad people were predestined to murder Jesus on the cross. Why? For us. 
for bad people. Do not put yourself with anybody in the story that is good. There is nobody good in the story, but you are not a good person. Remind yourself that your sin caused Jesus to die. And thus fulfilling God's plan through the worst of people, Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, every person imaginable fulfilled God's plan and this to forgive bad people. That's point number one. Point number two, bad people receive consequences. Bad people receive consequences. Shechem and Hamor received their consequence. It was death. They were killed. The wages of sin is death. Simeon and Levi, if you'll turn in your Bible to 49, Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49, read with me beginning in verse 1 and 2. It says, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Verse 2, Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel your father. Then go down to verse 5. It says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons and violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, O my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So at the end here in Genesis 49, we see that Simeon and Levi do not get a blessing. Rather, they get cursed by their father, Jacob. Simeon and Levi thought the anger of man produces the righteousness and the justice of God. Well, we're going to show them who's boss. And therefore they will obey. They will understand now. Anyone here struggle with anger and violence? Right? Heed the word of the Lord. Vengeance is mine, the Lord's. Not yours. I will repay. Look to the actions of Christ here in 1 Peter 2. He says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. I'm going to get you back. He did not say that. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus' hope was in the fact that his Father is going to judge every sin righteously. Bad people are going to receive their consequences. Fight the good fight. Entrust in Christ, who entrusted himself to his father. Jacob's sin of indifference towards his daughter, she got raped. He did nothing to help her. Rather, the opposite makes a deal in order to gain money. What was his consequence? He has a divided household, rightly so. His brothers are rightly upset at him for not caring. But as I was thinking about this, I remembered in Romans 9 where it says, Jacob I have loved. And after reading this verse, or this chapter, I was like, how can God love Jacob after doing such a thing? What is the difference with Jacob compared to everybody else in this chapter? Well, God has promised to be with him. Genesis 28, six chapters ago, Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God loved Jacob based on absolutely nothing that he did but based on himself, who calls and has mercy. 
It is God unjust for letting this sin go? No, because he did not let this sin go. Somebody did pay for his sin. In Genesis 35, the first verse, it says that he builds an altar. Sacrifices were on those altars. And on those altars spilled much blood for sin. Jacob repents and he sacrifices and spills blood in order that he might worship and come back to God. But the entire chapter 34, we do not see him worshiping the Lord at all. He forgot about God in this entire time. He tried to do things on his own and look where it got him. Nowhere. And then finally, I'm going to ask, what about me for this, the second point? What about me? Right? I am a sinner. We're all sinners. Every single one of us is sinful. The wages of sin is death and eternal separation from God. Our consequence for those not in Christ is an eternity in hell, bearing the unbearable wrath from the Lamb, in which it will be so horrific, we will wish that the mountains and the rocks would annihilate us from existence because it is so awful. Sinners receive terrible consequences. But my third point is that there is hope for bad people. There is hope for bad people, like you and like me. If you go back to Genesis 49, if you're still there, I want to show you the hope that comes from this situation. Genesis 49 Right, so here, Jacob is, is giving blessings or curses to his son. The first son, Reuben, he's saying, You are my firstborn, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power. But it says, Because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it, which happens in Genesis 38, we haven't seen that yet. But he doesn't get the blessing. We just saw Simeon and Levi don't get the blessing in 5-7. through seven. But if you go down to verse 8 here, to Judah, it says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your, fa- your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. It skips Reuben. Skips Simeon and Levi. But it stops and he gives a blessing here to Judah. There's hope in the midst of the situation. And we know that Jesus Christ comes from Judah. In the genealogy he says that Jacob the father of Judah mentions Judah. Why? Because this is, he's the son who is blessed. Now what is the scepters and the ruler's staff that it talks about here? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. These are objects that signify kingship. Judah is a picture of a king. But it points forward to the Davidic king and then finds the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Right, Hebrews 1.8, he quotes Psalm 45. He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The hope for bad people like you and me is that God did give kingship and a blessing to somebody. It wasn't Simeon and Levi in the story, but it was Judah. 
And God kept the line all the way from Judah to Jesus Christ. David died, and the scepter came, and was fulfilled, and never, ever will leave Jesus. Jesus Christ possesses his kingdom forever and forever. He is the fulfillment of this because he died on the cross, but he did not stay dead on the cross. You know what happened? Three days later, he rose again. Jesus is alive right now as we speak, never to die again. That is our hope. Because Jesus died on the cross for sins. Anyone in here a sinner? You better believe you're a sinner. But Jesus is good and he judged the sins of those who would believe in him on himself. He is right and he is just. He punishes sin. But for those who believe in him, the sin is on himself. And he gives him, us, perfect righteousness. It's unbelievable. The lion from the tribe of Judah comes and lays down his life as a lamb for bad people. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ the king laid down his, his crown to bear another crown of thorns on our behalf. He who knew no sin, King Jesus, became sin for us that in him we might become a royal priesthood for God. Righteousness. This is the good news to whoever would believe it. Those who believe in King Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. Whoever does not believe remains condemned before God. Remember, again, you and I are the bad people in the story, but the only hope for us, bad people, is that somebody else paid for our sin. I plead with you this morning to consider Jesus. Those who do not know Jesus and those who do know Jesus to continue to consider Jesus. Come. You do not need to bring anything except your sins, your burdens, and your guilt and see them placed right on his shoulders. Right on his, right on, right on his, his wrists and his, and his feet and on his head and on his side. See your sin placed on him because he so loved you you bad person. But believe in Christ and receive eternal life and righteousness. Let's pray. Our Lord and Savior, I thank you so much, God, for being a good God and a righteous God who punishes sin, who does not let bad things just go unpunished. Lord, I thank you, God, that you know everything and that you see everything. Lord, I thank you, God, that you are everywhere, that you are big, and yet you are near. Lord, I thank you so much that you decided and desired before time that you're going to send your son Jesus to reconcile bad people to yourself, that we might become righteousness, Lord. And and God, you get so much glory from your son's death and resurrection. God, I pray that if anyone here does not know you, God, I pray that you would please, by your, your sovereignty, open up their eyes to see you to see how bad that they really are, but how great and how merciful our God is. God, I pray for those who do know you, and maybe this message, they've heard it so many times that it, it, it just rings dull. God, I pray that you would liven them to see your gospel afresh, to see it new, and to see you beautiful. 
And Lord, bid us all to keep coming to you that you might forgive us. You're so good. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before Gene comes and closes out our service this morning, I just want to say two quick things.